Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and I'm really excited today to be joined by Yana Stenova, who's an assistant professor at McMaster University, and um, she teaches in the Department of Anthropology. Uh, and I'm so excited about today's episode. It's a little bit different topic than the previous episodes we've done, but um, very, very interesting. So welcome to the show, Yana. Thank you, Lev. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, yeah. And I'm so excited. And also, I should just say that um, you are a member of our book club. And so I've gotten to know you a little bit over the last couple of months. And I'm very excited that you're in the book club. And I'm also very excited to have you on as guest. I love the book club. <laughs> Great. Me too. I want to talk about your, your work, um, but I also want to talk about ethnography. So the, the topic of today is, is your ethnographic field work that you've done in Venezuela, um, working with youth um, who are part of a nationwide classical music program called El Sistema. Before we talk about this program and, and your field work, um, I think a lot of listeners, especially younger listeners, may not be familiar with what ethnography is. So the first question is an easy question, I guess. And what is ethnography and why do people do ethnographic fieldwork? Uh, thank you, Lev. That's actually a hard question because it, uh, I am someone to represent my discipline, but I'll speak for myself here and what I understand ethnography uh, to be. So uh, ethnography is the product of uh, fieldwork, which is the central method of anthropological research. Fieldwork implies uh, an anthropologist going into um, uh, the context, the country, the society that they're hoping to study, spending a prolonged period of time uh, there, getting to know people, getting to know the topic, and writing about it. Uh, and the product of this labor is called ethnography. Uh, in my case, uh, my ethnographic labor is very personal. I uh, emphasize very much uh, my own presence uh, in the field and how what I see and how I interpret it is inflected through uh, the eyes uh, and lens of my own background uh, and my own personal experience. Uh, so it's, it's actually a, an incredibly satisfying uh, exercise. It's a way of producing knowledge uh, from the opinions uh, uh, and interpretations of people on the ground. So rather than uh, knowledge that arises from statistics or big uh, data uh, interpretations, this is uh, a knowledge that comes from the very intimate uh, uh, place of stories and uh, experiences of people on the ground. Great. And then maybe we can talk about both what Sistema is. I mean, I'm really curious in how you come to Venezuela, how do you carry out an ethnographic study? Uh, thank you. Well, El Sistema is a, a Venezuelan initiative that started in 1976. It was uh, spearheaded by uh, Jose Antonio Abreu, who is a Venezuelan politician, but also a musician. Um, and he, uh, the, at the time when he uh, created this program, realized that um, classical music was very elitist in Venezuela. It was uh, practiced by a select few. There were very few music conservatories in place, and uh, they were uh, also privileging uh, European uh, performers or pe people of European or origin who resided in Venezuela. And he wanted to create a music uh, school and, um, that was open to um, as many people as wanted to participate in it and that would make classical music more democratic rather than uh, elitist. And so he started with 50 people 
gathered together in a garage as the legend go goes and then uh, the movement grew to be um, a million people right now uh, or so the wow. institution reports i'm not sure that those numbers are correct uh, but basically um, there are many schools all over the country that uh, are devoted to teaching classical music to uh, young people it's it's a free program uh, it provides uh, free instruments to, to the students and at a higher level as as you advance up and reach the more professional um, orchestras that tour the world so to speak uh, then you even uh, get a scholarship but the impetus is to make the uh, practice of classical music less elitist and more collective and so for me what that looked like i heard about el sistema after I saw this movie <laughs> about the program and I instantly uh, was captured by it because I'm a classical musician myself. I have grew up in Bulgaria playing the piano and the flute and I was interested in the topic of um, uh, arts and uh, social change in Latin America. So the moment I saw this program, I uh, I was very moved um, by this movie because it showed violins in the barrios of Caracas. So uh, it, it seemed like a very unusual place uh, from my perspective uh, to see uh, violins and, and kids uh, playing classical music in very informal ways rather than in a, in a concert hall where everyone is uh, dressed formally and behaves in very proper ways. Uh, classical music was being played by kids while um, their siblings are screaming around the house and their parents are going about their lives. So, th so that was um, striking to me. And I wanted to understand why so many people, um, young people and their parents in Venezuela cared about classical music. Why were they drawn to it? And that's uh, what um, took me to the country. And so I'm, I'm wondering when you arrive, how do you meet the, the young people? And then when you're with them, and I guess this is a more general question about ethnography, but also very specifically about your project, how do you become a fly on the wall? Are you a fly on the wall? Do you become friends with the young people? I'm, I, I don't think I could ever uh, be a fly on the wall. So I uh, do away with that aspiration altogether. I am very much, uh, uh, myself and uh, who uh, I bring to the field. Um, so I first met the, so I arrived in Venezuela without knowing anybody there and my friends were concerned about me uh, back in the States. I was uh, doing my graduate degree at Brown at the time. And so I had one friend who uh, put me in touch with um, uh, the driver of his uh, friend, uh, so this uh, man I never met, uh, uh, picked me up at the airport and drove me to my residence. Uh, my residence was arranged by another friend who knew a German sound engineer who worked at El Sistema at the time. So um, he uh, basically uh, uh, arranged a, a room for me to live in and then had gathered a few of the musicians over for dinner the night I arrived and so already the first night I met a few of the people I have to clarify that though the program is mostly for children and youth most of my interlocutors were uh, 18 years of age and older or the, okay. at least the people I became um, friends with uh, over the course of my study uh, and so those were the first people I met and they belong to um, the orchestras of El Sistema that toured the world and they are sort of the, um, the face of the program um, abroad. Um, and, and so I, I did become friends with them and I also started to rely on them a lot because I did not know much about the country. So they helped me orient myself. They helped me develop the skills of survival that are necessary 
uh, on the streets of Venezuela where um, uh, uh, robberies are frequent and uh, guns are so widely available uh, and where homicides are some of the highest in the world in non-war uh, um, so affected countries. So uh, we very much uh, became uh, friends and they still are my friends uh, to this day, uh, people I uh, reach out to as, as one would to a friend, not only to uh, access information that I could write about, this is by far a secondary concern for me. Uh, these friendships have become the, the core uh, of, uh, of my relationship with these people. When you go into a research project, or in, and again, this specific research project, are there things that you, are specific things that you, one, hope to learn? Do you come in with, with a thesis or do you just come in with a thesis question? And then I guess the big question here is what did you, and of course you learned hundreds of things, but what were the most important things that you learned from your experience in, in Venezuela and about this program? Uh, that is that is a hard question and a beautiful one. Um, before going to the field, we are required in graduate school to write a proposal uh, that usually gets funded by one agency or another. Uh, in my case, my research was funded by the National Science Foundation. So I did have to formulate uh, uh, sort of uh, main questions and hypotheses. And um, at the time I was being uh, asked by my mentors and specifically by the instincts that um, are important in my own discipline, which was basically to understand how uh, the practice of music translated into certain social categories that we can uh, you know, hold uh, with our language that we can define uh, that, uh, that are translatable into some kind of uh, political, economic, or social um, uh, uh, phenomena. And, and so um, my in, uh, mentors were asking me to think about the institution's relationship to the state, uh, for example, how the practice of classical music could turn into uh, a tool of ideological indoctrination. Uh, they were asking me to think about how uh, the attraction to classical music was actually an aspiration to become European, an aspiration to achieve upward mobility. Uh, so I went with those uh, questions uh, already sort of shaped in my mind. But as I as I um, as I encountered these stories and these musicians, I, I came to realize that this uh, academic armor was not uh, sufficiently fine-tuned to capture what my uh, interlocutors were telling me. So I realized that they actually had a very uh, genuine, uh, if uh, that's the right word, investment in classical music. They uh, they loved that music. It became a part of their lives. It, it became a way of them making sense of, of the world. Um, so I, I had an interlocutor, uh, uh, Damien, uh, as he wanted to be called in my ethnography, because we changed the real names of our um, of the people we write about to protect their privacy. So Damien, an oboist, was telling me that uh, he uh, had been unable to uh, make sense of uh, his uh, grandfather's death uh, until he listened to Mozart's Requiem, which uh, brought out um, his emotions and helped, me, helped him uh, think about grief. Um, so uh, there were uh, moments like that when uh, I realized that music was incredibly important uh, to my interlocutors. Another friend was telling me that he would like to he likes to play violin um, 
in the house and as he uh, uh, plays the music he in a way creates a a, a, a world of sound around himself uh, that uh, uh, separates him from the everyday rhythms uh, of life and these um, worlds of the imagination uh, are incredibly important to uh, to surviving to uh, aspiring uh, to um, to, to their uh, to their to their spiritual and emotional lives and so I tried to um, to take seriously what they were telling me I didn't want to always translate uh, their experiences into familiar categories of analysis I didn't want to reduce their love for classical music to uh, uh, to a kind of a blind aspiration to be European I felt like they were incredibly aware of uh, racism, of European uh, ideology and the way it had uh, and continues to shape their, their country. But nevertheless, they were carving out a space of experience within classical music that was on their own terms. And that's what moved me. And that's what led me to uh, not discard uh, the uh, directions in which my in, uh, mentors were asking me to think about, but to add another layer of complexity to them to uh, to add yet another layer of experience and analysis, which came very much from my interlocutors. And you've also written, which I, I thought was really interesting. You you wrote about the challenges of writing ethnography, like sort of the limitations of writing ethnography, and also the real challenges that present themselves when you're writing about music. You say it's not unlike writing about poetry. So how, how did you navigate those difficulties? Uh, yes, uh, that was the difficulty that was spelled out to me again by my interlocutors from whom I learned so much. Um, and so they, they, they kept telling me, because I, I was constantly asking them questions, what does music mean to you? And, and sometimes they would get a little uh, frustrated and say, well, we can't tell you, you <laughs> experience it together with us. So why don't you just play with us? And so I, I would play with them. Uh, I would play the piano and they would play another instrument. For example, I would accompany them on um, if they played the oboe or the cello or the violin. And so in those moments of uh, collaborative uh, music making, we were inhabiting a time uh, that was very much determined by the musical piece and how we engaged with it. And in this time uh, of musical experience, you cannot be writing words or you cannot be thinking uh, simultaneously. Uh, and so I realized that those moments of musical experience were somehow in a way outside of uh, ethnographic field work uh, as we know it, or they were outside of uh, words. Uh, the moment we finished playing, then we could talk about it. And But it was always reflecting back on an experience that we had inhabited uh, together. It was uh, always uh, uh, an interpretation uh, after after the event itself. So um, here is uh, potentially where uh, one limit of ethnography lies, uh, precisely that uh, in the inhabiting of this sonorous world, which is very much a physical phenomenon because sound is vibration. It, it's the vibration of air, it's the vibration of bodies, it's the vibration of instruments. Um, uh, but it's also uh, this experience of time that is very particular. Um, and music can make uh, time speed up, it can make time slow down. Uh, and it, it, it's hard to write about that. It's hard to bring it back, rein it in uh, into uh, uh, neat categories 
uh, of analysis and, and, and in some ways um, this taught me to uh, seek uh, a language that uh, was attentive to sound and, and the environment, but also for me to be attentive to the sound of the language and the words I chose to, uh, to write and describe these phenomena. Yeah, you describe it as, a, as a needing a method of, en of enchantment, which I thought was, was a really great way to phrase it. And I imagine it's just as difficult if you're writing about a concert or uh, a basketball game or anything else where words don't do justice mm -hmm. all the time. I'm also wondering if it was difficult because you're also writing in English and, and maybe your native tongue is Bulgarian. Was, was that also a challenge? Is, would it have been easier to do in, in Bulgarian or is it just as difficult huh. in any language? Um, I don't think it would have been easier in Bulgarian, mostly because I uh, spent most of my academic career in the States. Uh, I did my undergrad there and then my um, PhD and so on. Uh, if anything, Spanish, uh, we had another language that was uh, the dominant language of my field work uh, perhaps would have done more justice uh, to some of these ideas. And that's why in ethnography, uh, anthropologists often appeal to the original word as they encountered it in the field in order to describe certain uh, phenomena that they're writing about. So for example, this, the central uh, concept uh, in my writing um, is enchantment, uh, which means a fascination with something, the capacity to experience wonder, to be moved uh, deeply by something. But the beautiful thing is that this word enchantment, uh, as I encountered it in Spanish, is um, uh, encantar, uh, which means to, again, to be enchanted, but uh, it contains the word cantar, which means to sing within itself. So uh, here, Encantar served um, uh, served a beautiful theoretical uh, purpose mm -hmm. uh, that helped me describe the musical uh, sonorous dimensions uh, of this experience. And then the musicians would also uh, say main canta about music, which means I love it. I mean, uh, so it, it doesn't, it mm. could mean enchanted, but in colloquial, colloquial Spanish, it just means uh, I love it. And so um, uh, playing uh, with words across different languages has uh, helped me uh, look at a, a phenomenon from, from many different uh, perspectives uh, and to think together with my interlocutors, some of whom, were incredibly attuned to uh, language and uh, its multiple nuances. And sometimes as I asked them to explain certain words to me, uh, they would engage in these uh, beautiful uh, explanations that uh, surrounded the word from many different angles and explained it to me in that, uh, many different ways. And so, um, yeah, for example, enchantment was one, uh, encantar was one such uh, word that uh, hovered between English uh, and Spanish and the very experience of music that it was describing. I mean, what years were you in Venezuela doing this work? Um, I first arrived in Venezuela in 2011 um, and then I spent uh, one summer uh, then, uh, another one in 2012. My main year of field work was between 2013 and 2014, and then I went back again in 2015, which was my last uh, visit uh, to Venezuela. I ask because I'm, you know, I'm also interested. I'm, I'm very interested in your work, and I'm, I'm also interested in, in the political economy of Venezuela. And 
I've been to Venezuela. I, I was there in 2000 and in 2000, oh, wow. a long time ago. And obviously lots of, has changed since then. But it always struck me that I that reading reading the New York Times, reading Simon Romero, who was a the, the main journalist there for a while for the Times, his writing didn't really reflect at all how I felt about the country or what I, you know, what I thought was going on there or what or friends were telling me was going on there. And so I find it, it from a distance, it's really difficult for me to understand what the situation in Venezuela is. And of course, you're just one person and you were there just for a short period, but I'm wondering, I'm wondering what you made of the, and I don't know if it's even appropriate to call it a socialist revolution, but the, the socialist movement in Venezuela and what the, what the people that you met there thought of, of what had happened since Chavez and Maduro. Um, yes, uh, thank you. Uh, that is important and also incredibly complex because what I found out in Venezuela <laughs> and which has served me in many other contexts later in thinking about um, other polarized political contexts, including the one in, in the US is that um, our take on a, a particular social issue is very much inflected through the uh, experience, our life experience uh, and our uh, current uh, social standing. So um, my interlocutors were uh, young people who were, um, in between generations, uh, so to speak. They had uh, grown up exclusively um, almost under Chavez, uh, um, who came to power in uh, 98. Uh, so uh, their first memories were basically of the uh, of, of Chavez's um, uh, 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 presidency. So um, their parents uh, tend, so most of my interlocutors were residents of the urban barrios, which are lower class uh, neighborhoods in Caracas and, and all over the country really. Um, and so their, their parents were tended to be, uh, but not all of them, of course, uh, tended to be supporters of Chavez because they, and in explaining that uh, fascin that love for Chavez, actually, that would be a better word to describe it. They, they always went back to the time when they were growing uh, up um, uh, under the neoliberal uh, governments uh, in, in place in the 90s. And um, it was a time in which uh, barrio residents were completely invisible. They were living in extreme poverty and they were outside of the scope of the political discourse. They were just not a population that was talked about. And at, at that time, um, the poverty was really severe. So um, it was uh, at that moment of desperation uh, that uh, Chavez came to uh, the political scene and um, and and made this, this group of people the center of his uh, political agenda, which of course was uh, very welcome. And, and his uh, idea was supported by uh, a moment of uh, oil boom. And um, so the oil money uh, supported these social projects and, and there was a lot of progress that was made. Uh, uh, poverty was reduced, um, uh, illiteracy was uh, uh, reduced um, and, um, um, and people had greater access to uh, education and, um, and to um, a stable income. However, this, uh, this, um, this has proved to be a bit of a fragile uh, victory. And as, as you probably have heard after Maduro came to power, he wasn't able to sustain that um, the momentum game gained. Uh, during Chavez and the country now is uh, collapsing. 
significantly. Um, I, I interpret it as um, uh, the lack of institutions uh, to hold up uh, this oil wealth. So uh, Venezuela has to import uh, almost everything, including basic goods like milk, um, toilet paper, which were, um, uh, there was a shortage of these basic goods when I was there. Uh, towards the end of my year of field work. And that's when the anti-government protests began. And um, my interlocutors were sympathetic towards these uh, protests. They were curious about them. They wanted to be part of them because they also didn't like uh, what was happening. They didn't like the fact that the government was repressing uh, uh, people, that it was making Venezuela sort of uh, very closed off to the world, especially because the currency, the Venezuelan currency is basically worthless uh, abroad and already was at that time. Um, they they interpreted Chavez's agenda as, um, uh, as, as a, some of them called uh, it brainwashing um, and, and they believed that uh, their parents were perhaps overly nostalgic uh, and, and they uh, were just remembering the past, but they uh, they believed that the, the future could be much better than the past, uh, that it was not good enough that uh, Chavez has made, had made things just a little bit better than before. But so as they joined the protest, they encountered another difficulty, which was that most of the opposition supporters were uh, middle and upper class Venezuelans who did not at all look uh, um, like like them. They they're uh, people who are um, who have lighter skin, uh, who uh, are quite uh, rich usually, um, and 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 whose life experience is nothing like the one in, of people in the barrios, and who do not necessarily care about the, that population, and so. Um, this made me realize I'm, I'm talking to a generation that's in between uh, political uh, moments and that's trying very hard to articulate its own position, but they're stuck between um, their loyalty to their parents' visions and then also uh, to the uh, fact that the opposition does not really uh, respond to their the needs of people from the barrios, it does not really represent them. And so in between those two spaces, they uh, they felt uh, like they did not belong. And many of them actually emigrated as a result. Yeah, you're a professor now and you must give this, your students lots of ethnographies. I'm wondering what your very favorite ethnography is that you give your students. <laughs> Oh, that's a that's hard. There's not only one, but uh, my very favorite would be Vita by Joao Bill. It's um, it's called Vita: Life in a, a Zone of Social Abandonment, and it's about um, it's about one person uh, uh, who be, becomes the central interlocutor of uh, this uh, eminent anthropologist uh, Joao Bill. Uh, he uh, goes to work um, and conduct his field work in um, an institution uh, in Brazil uh, that collects uh, people deemed by society to be not fitting uh, people uh, with mental health issues who are also unwanted by their own families. And he sees that as a symptom of historical and political transformations uh, in Brazil at the time. But what's beautiful about the ethnography is the um, among many things, is, is the way uh, Joao Bill talks about this woman and how he fall, finds poetry 
in the words that the institution deems illegible and uh, is making no sense and how uh, gently and with respect uh, he treats her her life and the uh, dedication to um, uh, understanding where she comes from and also that respect for spaces of incommensurability, spaces uh, that we can never really transcend in trying to understand another person. Yana's book will be out this October. It's called Sonorous Worlds, Musical Enchantment in Venezuela. We look forward to reading it.